It's here, the fall TV season. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins guides us through his take on the new show's trends, hits and misses. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. Welcome back to the show. On this episode, we get you ready for the fall TV season, which is just about here. And it's a mixed bag. For example, this season, there's a lot of 70s and 80s nostalgia, like the MacGyver reboot and The Exorcist starring Gina Davis, based on the classic film. The much-awaited Netflix series with superhero Luke Cage is finally here, and we talk about which of the political satire shows will stand out with their election coverage. And a carpool karaoke without James Corden? Really? But without further ado, I'm super pleased to have with me Eric Deggins to guide us through and share his thoughts on the upcoming season. Eric Deggins is a TV critic at NPR, an author, and a judge at the prestigious Peabody Awards given for excellence in TV and radio. I started by asking Mr. Deggins what he thought of a show that's really blown me away this summer, the much-talked-about HBO series The Night Of. Well, The Night Of, um, I do like a lot. Um, that's a show that sort of gains steam um, as the episodes progress. It starts very slowly, but um, sort of gains a lot of momentum in, in the story as the episodes progress. And um, it's a really complex drama about um, how dehumanizing the criminal justice system is uh, and, and how it's dehumanizing... Uh, in the way that sort of bureaucracies can be, not for any one reason, but just because it kind of grinds on in, in, in an inexorable kind of way. Right. And and we see um, a young man who's, who seems to be very innocent, the son of Pakistani immigrants, who is accused of a crime that even he's not sure, for sure, if he's committed or not, uh, a, a ghastly murder. And then we see... Uh, him sort of processed through the system and go on trial. And uh, critics have seen the first seven episodes. They didn't let us see the conclusion of it. So um, so even we don't know um, yet how it all ends, but uh, it's a really sort of realistic picture of how the American criminal justice system uh, works in all this dysfunction and, and, and madness. Explain to me what I'm not understanding. It looks like I killed her, I know that. That's how it looks. But it's not that simple, is it? I want to tell you something, and it's the most important thing you'll ever hear in your entire life. Don't talk to anybody anymore. Shut it. You need to understand what happened here. Things just got out of hand. If I'm off, tell me how I'm off. We'll never get another chance. I told you not to talk to anybody. What does it mean when they put a great show like this on in the middle of the summer? Is that a good time or are they like, you know? Well, it's a limited series and it's um, it, it, it's a series that's had a particular history at HBO. It was originally championed by... Um, James Gandolfini, the star of The Sopranos, he wanted um, the part of uh, the defense attorney, the 
sort of um, nebbishy, kind of down on his luck, ambulance chasing, defense attorney who winds up representing the kid who's accused of murder. He wanted to play that part, I think, because it was such a departure from the role that brought him his greatest fame as Tony Soprano. Right. Um, and uh, and he died while the project was in development. He, he died after basically filming the pilot. And so um, they spent time uh, sort of recalibrating it. And um, Robert De Niro had originally agreed to, to play the part and then backed out or dropped out or whatever happened. He didn't end up doing it. And they got John Turturro to do it, who does a fabulous job. He's amazing. Yeah, he's, he's, he's really great in the role. Um, and, and I just, you know, I got the sense um, from people at HBO, you know, there's a, there was always a lot of fondness for James Gandolfini at HBO. And uh, The Sopranos kind of helped build HBO as we understand it, uh, especially in terms of its original series. And this was a series that he would, had championed and, and uh, was really um, pushing to see it made. And it also behind the scenes, um, you know, Richard Price is a co-writer of this show, and he was um, a writer on The Wire, and he's a well-known crime novelist. And, and so there's a, there's a lot about the show that kind of has its DNA in HBO. So they, um, you know, even though in a way it's kind of a surprise, they stuck with this project until now mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and eventually got it on the air. But it's a limited series. It's, there's only eight episodes. There's no guarantee they're going to do more. Right. Uh, it took Stephen Zalian, the screenwriter who wrote um, uh, Schindler's List and uh, many other great movies, it took him about four years to develop this series. So, um, so I think for HBO, it's it's a bit of an experiment over the summer, mm-hmm. and they always have this question of, you know, what are they going to do with Sundays when Game of Thrones and Veep and Silicon Valley in their runs? So it's actually a good time to put it on in the summer, then. It is. It is. Especially for summer, they're trying to, to come up with a slate of shows that might be a worthy successor, but wouldn't necessarily be a top-line uh, kind of TV show. So so The Night Of gets them through this year, uh, drama-wise. It, it basically has the time slot that Game of Thrones had. And they have these uh, they have Ballers with, with uh, Dwayne Johnson and The Rock, uh, which is a strong performing series for them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they have this new series, Vice Principals, with Danny McBride. Um, and, um, and Walton Goggins, um, that's kind of a, kind of a, um, it's, it's, it's sort of almost kind of a smutty comedy about, um, two rival vice principals in a, uh, in, in a really dysfunctional high school. And, um, so that's a nice little package to kind of get them through the summer. Right, right. Uh, and, and then they have a bunch of ambitious projects slated for the fall. So this is a year where there's a daily show without Jon Stewart. There's sort of Colbert show, but it's not the Colbert Report. There's John Oliver, Samantha Bee. Which of the political satire um, shows do you think will be doing the best coverage going forward in this election season? Uh, what I don't know about going forward, uh, Saturday Night Live is dark now, uh, so we don't really know um, what they're going to do. Uh, I would say that during the conventions, uh, Stephen Colbert has has risen to the challenge and he's mm. really presented um, shows last week and this week um, that are that are impressive uh, and I think the challenge for him is going to be to take that energy that um, you know sort of raised his game and figure out a way to do that night after night after night when there's not um, when he's not doing live shows right after a political convention 
you know, this guy needs to up his game and he needs to get an edge. Right. You know, he needs he needs to I mean, we're in the middle of a political campaign where the 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 the, the choices could not be more stark. And it feels it feels as if America is on the verge of making a historic decision here. And um, the two most incisive uh, satirists and commentators on modern political and media culture are gone. You know, John Stewart is off of The Daily Show and his successor is too nice um, to say some of the things that need to be said. And, uh, and in a way that happened with Colbert, you know, the Colbert rapport is gone. The character who filled that slot is gone. And the real Stephen Colbert um, too often seems to want to be a nice guy uh, to, to say the things that need to be said. But during these conventions, he's, he's done that. You know, he's, he's, he's become a bit more edgy. He's gotten pe- in people's faces a bit more. Uh, there was this moment, uh, I don't know if you saw it, he plays this, um, he, he satirizes this character from The Hunger Games right, when he about the good. presidential nominations. And at the RNC, he was able to sneak onto the stage and, and do that character from the podium. Um, and, and he tried to do that at the DNC, and they, had, they were ready for him, and they had guards all around the podium, and they wouldn't let him up. And he kept trying and trying and trying, and then he finally figured out a way to jump up on the podium <laughs> before, they, before the security pulled him off. And I thought to myself, that's the old Colbert. You know, that's, that's, that's the guy who, um, you know, is going to make kind of a snarky, in-your-face kind of joke. And he's just going to do it. He's going to figure out a way to do it. Let's move on to the fall. Um, there's a big season coming up. Tell me a little bit about the trends you see coming and some of the new shows you're looking forward to. You know, some of the trends that we see, for example, is there's a lot of remakes. So... Uh, CBS is doing a version of MacGyver, and um, Fox is doing a version of Lethal Weapon. And um, this gives you a sense of sort of the long tail of, of network television. Um, they It takes a while for a project to kind of come to fruition, usually. Um, they, can't, they can't turn these ideas on a dime. So there was a point when everybody was looking through their... Um, archives and trying to find shows that they that they own the intellectual rights to that they could turn into TV shows that might um, you know make successful series and so that process started to happen and then these shows started to debut and most of them failed mm-hmm. um, and some of them didn't even get to the point where they where they even aired you know coach NBC tried to develop a, a reboot of coach and it never even aired so um, uh, I think, we're sort of at the tail end of that phenomenon where there are these shows that have kind of been in the works and they kind of made them. And so they're kind of going to put them on. Um, but nobody expects them to be very good. And, uh, the ones that I've seen are not good. Oh, really? Uh, so, um, so I don't, you know, I don't expect that they, I mean, they, they might wind up being surprise hits. You never know what, what will, um, pop on network television, but, but there's a fair amount of them. Uh, the other um, trend is it shows about time travel. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's uh, there's uh, NBC has one called Timeless. Um, ABC has one. Um, I think it's called Time After Time. Maybe um, uh, does does Fox have one? One of the other networks has has one. Uh, there's there's several of these shows. 
Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're reasonably well done. Any reason why you see why time travel, per se, is, is suddenly hot? <laughs> you can never really tell sometimes. I mean, sometimes the industry just decides, you know, we need, an, we need, a, we need our version of X. And then you wind up having, you know, a season where you have three different versions of the same concept. Um, you know, um, time travel exists. There's some villain who's going through the timeline uh, trying to achieve something in the past or in the future, and a stalwart band of heroes have to go take care of it. Um, I mean, the the only TV show I can think of that's centered on time travel before this is uh, the Legends of Tomorrow series on the CW. I can't imagine that that inspired a, you know three different clones, but um, for some reason, that, that, that idea of time travel has kind of resonated. Well, you have a, a sort of in the in the Flash and, and some of the superheroes here, you have people jumping from different, maybe that's more time zones than time travels, but but it seems to be a, th- a way to move the characters back and forth where they want them. Yeah, no, time travel is, is a big deal in the Flash universe too, but it's more um, sort of time travel within their sort of personal right. uh, story. Uh, it's not. It's not them going Different to more. you know hundreds of years in the future. You know, NBC's series has H.G. Wells actually inventing a time machine and Jack the Ripper hijacking it and coming to the present time, and then H.G. Right. comes to the present time to chase him, and uh, and then it works in reverse in the NBC series where there's there's a, a team who has to chase someone who goes from the present back into the past and try and affect the timeline for some reason. So so these are these are more classic time travel stories and I don't think they were inspired by anything that the CW was, was doing. Right, right. You know, some for some reason Hollywood's a bug at the same time. Sometimes you know it's just that if there's there's several hot scripts kind of running through the development process and everybody decides they want to make their version of it. Um, but I think it winds up um, I mean all of these shows the shows that I've seen all of them are, are decent shows. They're not terrible. Um, but, but, uh, but none of them are like, um, they're not the best pilots and, and, and they're not blowing my socks off. Um, but it's a trend, you know, it's an undeniable trend. What about The Exorcist? That's a real old favorite, but this time starring Gina Davis. Have you gotten to see that, or what are you thinking? Yeah, I saw it. I, you know, because um, this is based on the book and the movie, right? I mean, I will admit uh, that I'm not the hugest uh, fan. Uh, I mean, I love the the, the original movie, yeah. Uh, but but I but I you know I'm not the hugest fan of this sort of genre, and 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 it's it is weird to say this, but <clears throat> there is sort of a mini genre. Cinemax has a series, original series called Outcast, that's also about these these two people who sort of fight demonic possession. Uh, so The Exorcist comes along, and it, you know it's interesting, but uh, I, I I wasn't blown away by it. I want to I plan to watch it again before um, it, it debuts, just to uh, make sure that my initial reaction was was uh, the way I really feel about it. But I I, I just uh, I was not uh, that enthralled with it. Uh, to be honest. I am not a crazy person. I'm not saying you're crazy. There is something inside my house. It's a demon. A demon? And it's trying to take my daughter. Oh, Oh, God! Oh, my God! Father Marcus, what can you tell me about demonic possession? I had a dream. And you're in it. 
there was a child tied to a bed. Anything that's looking great to you? Yeah, I think, you know, what's interesting is that I'm finding that every network has at least one show that is really good. Mm-hmm. And and uh, as you might expect, you know, there's what, what I've often said about television is that um, stars don't make television. Television makes stars. So um, unknown people or people who are experienced but aren't you know, necessarily household names get a signature role and then all of a sudden they become stars. You know, and, um, you know, Robin Williams was a street performer before he played more for Mork on, on Happy Days. Right. You know, that kind of thing. You know, Jerry Seinfeld was a real regarded stand up comic, but he wasn't a house, really a household name until he started Seinfeld. Right. And, 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 and so that dynamic, I think, extends to series. You know, you can bring a lethal weapon or an exorcist or, you know, hey, there's a time travel series out there, whatever. You can do that. Um, but it's less. I think it's less likely though that will work. What works is is when something unique comes along, and it just kind of everything kind of clicks, and the next thing you know, there's this kind of amazing series in front of you. And um, you know, there's a there's a series on NBC called This Is Us, and um, it's hard for me to explain why the show without giving away. Um, you know, some essential spoilers that would make this show, you know, it wouldn't be as interesting if I told you why it's great. Intriguing. <laughs> Suffice it to say that it's a, it's a drama. It's about three very different people at different points in their lives. And at the end of the, uh, uh, at the end of the pilot, you realize that they have more in common than you realized. 36 years ago, you left me at the front door of a fire station. Tell me to wake the hell up. Tell me to lose the damn weight. We lost the third baby, but you have two healthy children, Jack. In the night sky. Oh, there's so much they hold. I quit. Screw you. You want to meet your grandchildren? There is not a single day that goes by that I don't think of the child I lost. Go see your babies. They're excited to meet their father. I think maybe they got a good one. Hey, you want to be fat friends? I can't fall for a fat person right now. I guess I'll lose the weight then. Um, uh, Sterling K. Brown, who you may remember, played um, uh, Johnny Cochran in The People of the Old O.J. Simpson. He's He, he plays uh, a pivotal character here. He's a guy who was uh, adopted. He was left at a at a, as a child, as an infant, he was left at a fire station um, by his biological father and winds up getting raised by uh, an adoptive family. And then he figures out uh, where his biological father is and goes and confronts him. Uh, and uh, then there's another pivotal character is an overweight 30 something woman uh, who is uh, struggling with her weight and struggling with her sort of place in the world. And um, and then she meets a great guy at um, a support group for overweight people and has to decide whether or not she wants to focus on losing weight or she wants to be with this guy um, uh, who's, who's much less committed to losing weight than she is. And, and, um, and then the, the third character is this um, actor who stars in this really stupid sitcom but very successful. And he, always, he wants to do more with his career but doesn't quite know how to get there. 
And, 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 you know, these all sound like wildly different stories and they may not even sound that compelling, but these people are connected in ways that I can't describe without giving away the, the story. And when you finally realize how they're connected, it makes you wonder where this, where this show's going to go next. Well, that's interesting. I can't wait for that. The pie was amazing. I have no idea whether they can sustain it over a series. Right. And that's always the challenge. Uh, sometimes great pilots do not lead to great series. And, and sometimes awful pilots lead to amazing series. So all, all it is is that they got a good shot because the characters are compelling and, and the story is unique. Um, there, uh, Fox has a show called Pitch that is basically about um, a woman who becomes the first woman to become a major uh, pitcher in the major leagues mm-hmm. um, um, uh, against men. And um, it's very well thought out. You know, if you're going to do a story about the first woman to compete in a male sport, you know, what's what kind of sport would it be where it would get a lot of media coverage, but a woman could realistically compete? Uh, and I think baseball is probably um, the one, and, and being a pitcher is probably the one. Uh, and so, in a way, it's sort of like, what if Serena was a was a baseball player, uh, and she uh, this character has a, a tough as nails dad who, um, you know, wanted to raise a baseball player. He was a former baseball player, and when he found out that his daughter was better at it than his son, he just focused on her. Um, and, and she becomes a major league pitcher and, and the pilot opens with, with her first, um, appearance, her first appearance in a major league game. So you like that one? Yeah. They have a really unique way of combining her contemporary story with telling the backstory of how she got there. And, uh, you know, some of the twists you could see coming, but, uh, but I think it's very well done. And again, the question is sort of, how do you turn that into a series that people want to see week after week after week? I don't know, but it's a very good pilot. There's a few shows that I'm curious about. I'm wondering if you've seen them. The Get Down, the new Baz Luhrmann series about hip-hop in New York in the 70s. Um, I'm really curious about that one. Have you seen or heard anything? What, do you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, Baz Luhrmann um, is, is the, uh, I think, the director of every episode. And Nelson George is involved, if you know him. He's uh, just an expert chronicler of, of that period of music. And, um, you know, he, he was the director of the uh, Misty Copeland um, uh, documentary. Oh, right. So, so two very talented guys getting it's together. It's interesting because it feels like Scorsese's Vinyl, which also was about the music, that sort of half-bombed. It didn't really do as they expected, I, I see, it seems. And so it's interesting to see. Hopefully this will be much better. Yeah, I think this is a different thing. Like if you saw the movie Dope, if you saw that. Um, I think I think this kind of this kind of touches that. It, this this touches that nerve. It, it, you know, it's the story of these scrappy kids. You know, sort of creating something special, um, and it's a homage to um, that period where um, disco was fading and rap was rising, and these young kids of color were creating this distinctive urban culture that was that, that we all know now is going to go out and conquer the world. With just a little courage, you could really be something. I got courage. Let's take a trip back, back in the time, 1977. It was maximum crime. You're a natural wordsmith, man. You're working for drug dealers. You ever thought of quitting? This ain't Disneyland, this is the Bronx! I right, but it seemed like nothing found me but trouble. I see the light, it's right there at the end of the tunnel. 
Don't push me to be who you want me to be. Nobody's asking what I want to be. Show me what you got. Shaolin's a DJ we call conductor cause Shaolin fantastic so bad mother. And that's a very different story than what Vinyl tried to tell, um, right. which is which is you know focusing on the least interesting elements of that time of music, all the businessmen who were coked up and trying to make money off of uh, new wave and 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 punk uh, in the seventies. Another one I'm really curious about, well, really at least it sounds kind of intriguing, is one called Bull, which is apparently about Phil McGraw, Doctor Phil. You know, a lot of people don't realize that uh, Dr. Phil um, was originally a jury consultant. And um, the reason he has this whole empire is because he was uh, the jury consultant for Oprah when she got sued by um, the beef industry uh, for something she said on her syndicated talk show. And it was a big case. And, you know, it was really pivotal. And, um, you know, she credits him uh, helping her win that case by helping them pick a sympathetic jury. And so now they have developed this um, sort of CBS-style procedural TV show around the concept of what um, uh, of a of a, a, a jury consultant, you know, psychiatrist kind of person. Is he involved in the show himself? I would be amazed if he was. Uh, I mean, I, I'm sure he's an executive producer, and I'm sure he's getting paid. But you know, this is um, uh, a, a CBS procedural that uses the fact that Dr. Phil was a jury consultant as this sort of excuse to create this world where there's this uh, jury consultant firm that's like, you know, using all this technology and all these psychological concepts uh, to predict what people will do on a jury. Rule number one, the client is the enemy. Your clothes, your hair, glasses, it's all a code. They're not going to convict me because of my haircut. Do you see that? He smirked. He's a smirker. 93% of all communication is nonverbal. You've been testifying since day one. <laughs> this case could come down to one juror who takes control of the jury. Tell me about her. Bess Johnson, 43, divorced. A son, AJ, gay, 24. She has a bumper sticker that says the system is rigged. Wow, that's cynical. How do you know it's her? How do you not know? You're a con man. It's what you have in con me. I love you, man. You know, it's like it's like CSI. You know, people who are actually forensic technicians have always complained about CSI because it leads the viewer, it leads the audience to believe that forensic science can tell you things that it can't tell you. And, and, and it leads um, it leads juries, in fact, to believe that there's a level of information that can come from a crime scene's forensics that just is impossible in the real world. And you get the sense from watching Bull that they are making conclusions about what jurors are thinking and will do. That just seems impossible in the real world. You know, it feels like a it feels like a fairy tale when you're watching it. Okay. And and when you're familiar with um, how CBS procedurals work, you know, um, there's always uh, a charismatic, loner, white guy hero who leads a team that is often relatively diverse. There's one or two people of color. There's a woman or two there. But the, uh, the leader is the white guy. Um, he's, a, he's a loner. He's emotionally detached. He's emotionally damaged. And part of the storyline is figuring out why... He's as screwed up as he is, and 
Uh, but somehow he has this special intuition or this special something about him that allows him to add that special sauce that leads to the cases getting solved week after week after week. And if you've seen The Mentalist, if you've seen CSI, if you've seen NCIS, any of those, all of those shows, it's, it's Criminal Minds, it's all the same thing. It's just different. It just happens in different But this is Dr. Phil. He's not supposed to be screwed up. <laughs> what does <laughs> yeah, Oprah well. say about this? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, and, and so the first thing you, you notice is uh, the lead character looks nothing like Dr. Phil. It's Michael Weatherly from NCIS, who's right. a very uh, you know conventionally good-looking guy with a full head of hair and no mustache <laughs> and you know, all of that. So you know, it's just it's funny because it's like you, you will watch some TV shows and they will – um, you know, you watch some comedy shows and they will create like a fake show. Like if you, um, if you, um, oh, what's that show that, that uh, Rob Lowe was on on Fox? Right, uh, the Grinder. The Grinder. Mm. Right, right. So, so he was, it was a comedy and he was the star of this, you know, fake show within the show called The Grinder, a legal show that was supposed to be this ludicrous, you know, law and order meets, you know, uh, C- CSI type show where Rob Lowe's character was the star of it, and then he, he quits the show uh, and tries to do tries to actually do what the grinder did in real life. So um, that fake show is what Bull feels like. Okay. You watch that show, <laughs> too bad. And, you, and, and, and you feel like, wow, that could be that could be a fake show. That could be the grinder, mm. you know. <laughs> so uh, so yeah. So I you know I wasn't. I mean, it's you know it's one of those shows where it fills all the numbers of a CBS procedural. If they air that show behind NCIS or behind Criminal Minds People or something. It's going to be successful. The audience will hang out. But it's not, you know, it's not groundbreaking. It's not anything new. Um, I, it's, it's nothing that I'm interested in. If you look into your crystal ball for the fall and say maybe three shows that you really think that, that are going to be talked about this coming season that we should all try and watch a couple of episodes of, what would you say they are? Well, that, man, that's a tough one. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff out there. I won't hold um, you to it. <laughs> there, there's a lot of stuff out there. But, um, you know, one good show that I did, uh, NBC, uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but NBC, I think, amongst the big uh, four networks, has both the best drama pilot and the best, arguably the best drama pilot. There's a couple other good ones. Uh, and and and, uh, and the best comedy pilot, okay. uh, too. So I talked about the drama pilot, This Is Us. Um, uh, the Good Place, which is a comedy with Ted Danson and, and, and Kirsten Bell, is also very good. That's when they're like in heaven or something like that. Yeah, you know, so Kirsten Bell plays someone who, who died um, and, and uh, realizes that she's in this place um, that supposedly people go when they've led exemplary lives. If you've, um, you know, been totally selfless your entire life. If you're beyond being a Nobel Prize winner, you know, um, just just the the the, the top, um, the best people um, who have lived on the planet wind up in this place where um, the environment is totally tailored to what they love the most. And when she gets there, um, she, you know, you hear her getting the spiel. Ted Danson kind of gives her a tour of the place and says, you know, hey, we, you know, we picked out this house for you because you love this kind of house and. You love clowns, so there's pictures of clowns everywhere, and you know all this stuff, and just the whole thing. And Ted Danson leaves, and then, um, and then she says, you know, 
I'm not that person. We have the same name, but you picked the wrong person. <laughs> so I don't like any of this. <clears throat> and I was a completely selfish person. And I don't know how I wound up here, but I don't want to tell them because because um, then they'll send me to the awful place. Right. right. So um, but it, it turns out that her presence there starts to distort the place and things start going crazy because uh, somebody's there who's not supposed to be there. That you did on Earth. Do you have a second to talk about the environment? Do you have a second to eat my farts? Oh. I can't risk going to the bad place. Okay, well, maybe it's not all that bad. We'll ask Janet. Hey, Janet. Hi there. <sighs> How can I help you? What is the bad place like? I can only play you a brief audio clip of what is happening there right now. <laughs> well, it doesn't sound awesome. So who is right? Every religion guessed about 5%, except for Doug Forsett. One night he got high on mushrooms and got like 92% correct. So it, again, like a great pilot. I have no idea how this is going to translate into a series, but um, but it's it's really well done. And, and, and I think people are already talking about it. People were talking about this show uh, in Epics Up in the Upfronts and uh, you know, I think it's I think it's great comedy. I don't I don't know if it's going to do great viewers, but it, it is it's really well done, and I, I think one of the probably the best new comedy so far that I've seen. Um, Netflix has uh, the, uh, Luke Cage, Marvel's Luke Cage. Right. Um, this uh, will be um, the first TV series in a long time uh, to feature a black superhero in the lead. Uh, Fox had a very forgettable show called Mantis a long time ago that. Um, also was focused on a black superhero, but this is an unapologetically black series. So most of the characters are black. It's set in Harlem. It's very much about black culture. Um, Luke Cage is this reluctant hero who reads what Ralph Ellison and has debates in the barbershop about LeBron. You know, this is a series that really tries to, it's a, it's a, it's a homage to black exploitation movies. Uh, and it tries really hard um, to to infuse every um, inch of the show with black culture. So so this is the first time that we've seen uh, a superhero presented in this kind of format. Sometimes if you want justice, you have to get it yourself. You have my word, ma'am. I've got you. You want to go to war? I'll take you to war. You might be bulletproof, but Harlem ain't. The whole neighborhood is yapping about how two goons got the beat down last night. I heard it was four guys. Do you like it? Have they been successful? Yeah, yeah, I think they did a, I think they did a really good job with it, and and it's not, it's not at the level of Jessica Jones, which was, I, I thought, uh, a masterpiece last year, um, where they took a, a superhero character, and, and you know, they they had um, a series focused on a female superhero, which is a rarity, um, and and told a story that was um, very much about how women intersect with the world. And with each other, and and with abusive partners, right. and and navigating all of that, and that and that was very much a story that was about a woman's experience, you know. Uh, and so this 
series is very much about a black man's experience um, and, and black people's experience. There's some strong black female characters here, too. I love that so many big themes are coming out of, of comics and superheroes uh, lately. Yeah. Well, they've always been about that. I just think, I just think that um, in the past, when, when movies and, t- and TV shows were made about comic book characters, they were made by people who didn't understand comic books. The underlying themes, right, right. And, um, and didn't respect the storytelling. And, and, and now the big difference is that the, the people who are making these comic book TV shows and movies are people who've, who are very conversant with comic books. They don't see it as a, as a subordinate art form. You know, they see the storytelling. They respect the storytelling in comic books the same way they respect the storytelling in great movies or te- television shows. And um, particularly with Marvel, um, there is a strong infrastructure built inside the production studio um, that is filled with people who know comic books and know comic book storytelling and know how to take the elements from comic book storytelling that work in film and TV and get that stuff in the films and the TV shows. Just a name like Ta-Nehisi Coates is doing Black Panther. I mean, that's an amazing person to have on that movie. Yeah, well, he's doing the... He's doing the book. He's doing, right, he's, right. he's not doing the he's not doing the movie. But the Black Panther movie has Ryan Coogler who right. did, uh, directed Creed, and um, uh, um, you know uh, some of the you know the top black actors in in Hollywood are all in that cast. Um, but but beyond that, you know, like Marvel, for example, uh, I don't think they do it anymore. But they had this little um, kitchen cabinet inside the studio that would work with every director that was doing a Marvel. Uh, movie and it was filled with um, writers at Marvel Comics who had worked in film and television, like Brian Michael Bendis, the guy who wrote um, the Jessica Jones storyline that became uh, the Jessica Jones series, and the guy who came up with um, the Spider-Man, who's black and Hispanic. Um, and I think he's writing. I think he's writing the the Black Woman Iron Man storyline now. So so he um, so they they would have this this kitchen cabinet of these. And, and like um, when Kenneth Branagh went to direct the first Thor movie, you know, he went over the storylines with this with these people and they sort of made suggestions about, well, here's what works in the comics. Here's what might, what might work here. And so you got a movie that was a much more consistent with the storytelling in the comics also benefited from that. Was there any more um, TV series you think we should be? Or, or TV, it doesn't have to be a series or comedy or, or, or reality or anything that you think is this is what's going to be talked about in the fall. Um, well, um, not necessarily in the fall, but in, in 2017, we're going to see a new Star Trek series. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody is, uh, is wondering what that's going to look like. It will debut on the first, uh, the pilot will uh, debut on CBS, but then the rest of the series is going to be on CBS All Access, which is CBS's online um, uh, platform. Oh, right. And so... And, and CBS has a couple of shows that are just going to live there, including a spinoff of The Good Wife with Christine Moransky. So um, not only will a new Star Trek be something that people want to keep their eye on, they are going to want to see how it uh, performs on this new platform. And will viewers, if they're interest, introduced to it on CBS, will they migrate uh, to CBS All Access uh, to see the rest of it? Um, so, so that's going to be an interesting experiment. We've also heard that Apple TV uh, bought the rights um, to do a version of Carpool Karaoke, um, the um, 
James Corden uh, mm -hmm. bit that he does on the Late Late Show. James Corden's not going to host it, but he will executive produce it, and they're going to pick somebody else to actually do it. Mm -hmm. And they're going to do a bunch of episodes that will be available uh, for streaming uh, through Apple. And so here's another thing where, uh, number one, what does carpool karaoke look like if James Corden's not doing it? Right. Uh, and, and number two, um, does it work as a standalone um, presentation? And three, um, does it work on Apple's platform? You know, so uh, so that so that'll that'll be interesting. You know, uh, th those are all things I'm going to be keeping an eye on. Thank you so much for your time. This was so interesting, and now I'm looking forward to the fall even more. Cool. Thank you. Thank you so much to Eric Deggins, who you will find at National Public Radio covering all your TV needs. And tweet us about what shows you're excited about this fall and what you'd like to hear more about here on Pop Culture Confidential. Our Twitter handle is at podpopculture. You can follow me at Yerling Biro, and the homepage is popcultureconfidential.com. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Carl Borg, and produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Thank you so much. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.